I'm very delighted to welcome uh, this evening Sarah Perry and, uh, and Graham Ward to the LSE Literary Festival. Sarah is a writer and novelist, and her first novel, After Me Comes the Flood, was published last year. It's been long-listed for The Guardian First Book Award, and it's already won the East Anglian Book of the Year. Graham is the Regis Professor of Divinity in Oxford, and he's a prolific author, theologian, um, including recent titles, True Religion, Christ and Culture, and his most recent book, which we're talking about this evening, Unbelievable, Why We Believe and Why We Don't. So we're going to be exploring the importance of faith as a foundation in our society today. For any Twitter users in the audience, um, I'm asked to tell you that the hashtag is LSE Lit Fest, which is presumably covering quite, covering quite a few events this evening, so you might need to uh, make it clear which one you're at. And I would ask you to put your phones on silent uh, so as not to disrupt the event. We are uh, recording, hence all this uh, technological equipment, uh, so the event will hopefully be available as a podcast afterwards. After the talk, there will be a chance um, uh, to um, have copies of both Graham and Sarah's book signed. They're available for sale at the back, so do please um, take that opportunity. I know that you're going to want to uh, after hearing about these books. So would you please join me in welcoming Graham and Sarah? So, Sarah, we thought we'd, uh, we'd begin hearing a little bit uh, about your extraordinary first novel. Both Graham and I um, sort of were tempted to use the cliche of, of, of saying it's a page-turner, but it really is a book that you just sort of can't uh, put down. It's very, very compelling. Uh, and it has been described in some reviews as, as quasi-religious, and it certainly touches on a lot of themes of faith without being uh, explicitly um, what one might call a, a, a Christian novel. So do please tell us a bit about it. Uh, yes. Um, I, I was asked um, quite a long time ago the question that novelists often are asked, which is, where do you get your ideas? And um, in this case, the idea came from the pulpit in the sense that I was brought up in a, in a very strict Christian church. And a topic that came up again and again and again um, during sermons was the question of love. And they would often talk about the common Greek, the New Testament Greek, and the fact that they had various different words for love. Um, brotherly love, um, sort of companionship love, love towards God. And that in English we only have the one word for love. And for many, many years I sort of toyed around with the idea of there being different kinds of love. Um, do we acknowledge them all? Do we understand them all? Do we experience them all? And I had the idea of taking a man who had never loved, not really, and making him experience love in as many different ways as possible. Transgressive, damaging, um, platonic, sexual, confused. Um, and that's what I did. So I threw this very lonely man into a very hot house full of um, strange people. And um, I then started to toy with the idea of what it means to have faith. Uh, are you mad if you have faith? Is it possible to have faith and have reason? Is love a form of faith? Um, and then the house itself almost functioned as a place of worship mm. in which they're striving not towards God but to attain some kind of sense of meaning and reason and love and so on. So. 
I'm not sure how well that explains it, but that's where <laughs> the idea came from anyway. Well, it's very difficult because one doesn't want to spoil the plot either, but in, in a curious way, they did seem to me like a little religious community. It was like a little sort of church, and they're struggling with the, the relationships and the dynamics and with... Um, uh, with their sins, in a way, and I know that's yep. uh, a theme that we were talking about earlier, and 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 of of uh, a lot of people there, uh, more than we discover, are worried about sins being found out in yep. the course of the novel. That's quite a big theme. Yeah, yeah, and I, I curiously, um, this sounds illogical, and it isn't. If you're brought up with the concept of original sin, the companion to that is redemption, and the idea that there is no sin beyond redemption. And I find that actually uh, secular writing can be curiously puritanical in that they still believe there to be immoral behaviour and wrong behaviour, but without the other side of the unconditional love and redemption that is available on sort of repentance. And I'm using sort of standard theological language that I don't necessarily condone. <laughs> it's just a way of um, experiencing it. So what I wanted to do was write about people who do transgress they do damage people, they lie and they're deceitful, but that that's kind of okay, that that's part of our condition, that it's not beyond forgiveness, that it's not beyond understanding. So I wanted to write compassionately about it rather than um, judgmentally. And I certainly felt that what makes the sins forgivable, if we're going to use it, that term, is that they arise out of all the characters' desire to be desired, mm. that that's very... Uh, fundamental to um, ha- people's behaviour within the course of the novel. And I was very interested to hear you describe the different kinds of love and of, uh, how the main character, John, experiences that in his relationships there. So it does even that sort of the, the people who do unpleasant things in the novel, there is that mm-hmm. you feel sympathetic towards them for that reason. Yes, and I, 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 I'm sure everybody has heard what I've heard where people say that's not love you know he doesn't really love you not if he did this you know she can't possibly love him because x y and z but we don't have a yardstick for what constitutes love by which we could say you've reached this measurement and therefore it is love Um, I think that we should have a more capacious and forgiving understanding of it and that love can exist in all sorts of ways including transgressive ways and that that doesn't make it a lesser emotion or that if the intimacy appears to be sexual or appears to be asexual um, that if it's cross-generational they're all valid um, and that they cause people to behave in certain ways but that if the motive behind it is one of love that it should be easier to understand and forgive because we're all capable of it, I think. And I know you're, you're, you're open to talking about how this has been, in some way, a sort of personal journey of discovery from you mm. from a kind of religion that you felt was perhaps quite unforgiving. In your yes, yes. And, and I, um, you know, I was effectively a biblical fundamentalist till I was about 26, 27. I was a missionary and everything. Um, and had to develop my own journey towards an expression of faith that I that lived alongside my very, very liberal <laughs> kind of yoghurt weaving, guardian reading <laughs> um, insides. And, um, and it required a catastrophic severing from the way I'd been brought up, from the paradigms that had been the foundation of everything I believed. And then I had to... And I'm still trying to work out how to, how to live, you know, how to live as someone who has some faith, doesn't really know what it is, um, but won't deny it, even though that would be nice and convenient and easy. Um, and so the book is almost a, 
a product of my working that out. Mm. And um, if anyone's read it, Elijah is a, a main character, and he's a preacher who's lost his faith, and that's really quite an autobiographical strand, mm. um, in as much as I can inhabit a 50-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Graham, now, your book's extraordinary, and uh, I, I, I really encourage everybody to buy it and read it, uh, but while also saying that it's probably not what they expect it's going to be. <laughs> and uh, for those, I mean, I'm very familiar with your work, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, it's quite a departure for you in some ways in some of the areas that you're exploring. There's a lot of uh, philosophical exploration, which um, you've been doing for, for, for many times. But, I mean, in terms of foundations of faith, you take us right back to the foundations of human civilizations uh, of... Uh, uh, we, we, we go way back beyond Plato's cave to uh, early, uh, early human beings um, and, uh, and then developed into a very rich exploration of, um, of, of what faith means, what belief is um, through history and then in, in our present time. Mm. Do, do develop it for us. <laughs> wow, from there. Um, well, it starts off with a ghost story because that's where I kind of first encountered this kind of sense of I need to understand what's going on here. And I, it was a ghost story I was involved in. Um, I was a, a, the dean at, at Peterhouse in Cambridge and on one evening um, when we were at dinner the butler came in and said that I had to go out immediately into the old com- combination room, which is next door to the dining room. And it was quite a difficult affair because the master of the college and I just did not get on. And I was one down from him. And he saw any kind of breach of protocol as a personal insult to him. Um, but eventually, the butler just it was so kind of overwhelming in, in, uh, in his insistence that I left. And I went into the combination room, which was really very, very cold. Really cold. I mean, that was the first thing that struck me. It was really cold. Um, And I knew that one of the fires had been on, because it was November. The whole of the floor uh, round near the the door was just full of smashed plates. And uh, there were two uh, of the understaff who were sitting there, just traumatised, completely traumatised, and eventually, uh, trying to force them into kind of putting words to what, what had happened, um, both of them had seen this, and it come through one of the doors, moved right across the room, and just disappeared. Um, and they, they had just got completely uh, terrified. And what, what kind of struck me, I didn't believe in Gargan, my theology couldn't find a place for... I don't understand this at all. Uh, what, what immediately struck me was that I run to people like the bishop, and the bishop calmly sat me down and said, well, do tell me if it happens again, because we can bring in the exorcist. <laughs> and I just, you mean this? You want me to take this as real, don't you? You want me to take this as real? And I just couldn't, couldn't quite, you know, know. And then I went to, you know, one of my wisest, most sagacious Dominican friends, who's the most grounded <coughs> person I know and is my kind of much, much older than me. And, and uh, I said to him, you know, you know I, I don't understand where this fits in. I mean, w- what is going on here? I, I, I don't believe in these things. And he said, well, 
I never did take you to the bedroom that's at the top of the house, did I? So, no, because we don't allow anyone to go in there because there's something really evil as a presence. And so, so you're telling me the same thing. Yeah, this is really, really difficult. But it was also the reaction of the people in Peterhouse. It, it wasn't a matter of... I mean, everyone got kind of really involved in trying to solve it. And you kind of realise that this wasn't, this wasn't about do I believe in ghosts or do I not believe in ghosts, which seemed to be a rational process. This was something that was really kind of emotionally engaging people uh, and dividing them in, in, in the way that they were emotionally engaged. So it kind, kind of came to me that believing was something far, far deeper than matters of conflicts of interpretation or, or rationality. Things were actually going on. And so I wanted to explore the origins, and I went back to um, the first evidence we have. Um, and in fact, it's really quite interesting that 2.2 million years ago, obviously, we, Homo sapiens are not actually here, but we get the first tool-making, which actually happens at that particular time. And the people exploring how you make tools say you've got to imaginatively project something um, Chimpanzees cannot make tools. They can actually use something like a stick to get things, ants out of something. But they couldn't, for example, put a wooden shaft with a, a stone, a, a chip stone, and realise the implications of that. That's a very complex. So that they, they must have some kind of picture in their mind that they're actually enabled to, to do this. And it was this kind of so. When does this intentional behaviour start to emerge that we can see? And you know, I, then the, the, some of the earliest um, intentional behaviour is domestic fires, the use of fire. Um, so you're going back to hearths, you're going back to early forms of tool making. And one of the most beautiful ones, which was an eye-opener for me, was actually reading an account, because you know, most of us are brought up with the idea that Neanderthals, which were not us, but in fact we, there was a time when we overlapped together, that Neanderthals were fairly kind of thick out. And the reason that we actually kind of, uh, uh, kind of were, ended up as being supreme is in fact because they just couldn't you know, handle various things, including the climate, and they just kind of, well, faded out. Well, there's a lovely account of a cave that was found in northern um, Iraq. And in, in this cave, which was a Neanderthal cave, there's a square cut out in the middle of the cave. And um, the, the square was covered, so we know that this was a tomb and it was a, uh, an intended to be a tomb. When they uncovered the tomb, they found that the, the lowest level of the tomb was a baby... Um, as an embryo, a, a curled up in a kind of fetal position. On top of that was two discalculated female skeletons. And on top of that, imitating the child was a man, uh, the skeleton of a man, with his mouth open towards the cave. And this is the most controversial bit. There were just lots of ancient pollens of flowers in, in, in the grave. 
Uh, it's, it's controversial because a lot of people uh, wanted to say that these pollens are blown in or whatever. But actually what it indicated was that there was a, they saw a pattern of things here. There were beliefs going on here. However we interpret what these were, you know, the man's mouth is wedged open towards the mouth of the cave. The whole kind of family cycle, reproductive cycle within the burial. Um, an amulet that was round, round uh, uh, the, the male's uh, neck. Some, whatever we go on to actually say, and, and, and nobody can go back to understand what's going on here, but nevertheless there was some kind of belief system that was actually coming out here. So that was part of the origins I, I kind of wanted to explore. And then, um, and then move on to the, the, the psychobiological origins as well. But I can do all that in um, yeah, I was preaching at Peterhouse two weeks ago, and having read your book, I was oh, just no. sitting in the SCR. <laughs> <laughs> I was very disappointed. <laughs> um, but what you, uh, and, and in using that anecdote and, and going back to these um, prehistoric origins, it seems to me that a big agenda of your book is to sort of muddy the waters. These days there's a sort of idea, do you, do you believe or do you not believe? Yeah. It's, you know, it's a question that people sort of... I uh, think is an obvious one, and yet you're saying actually belief is something that permeates human experience and always has done. Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, we never see something. We only see something as something. I mean, you know, all the kind of physiology of, and neurobiology about eyes is that this information is already being processed. Uh, it's being processed all the way through our emotional systems. Uh, thought and uh, thought is deeply, deeply effective. It's effective by uh, at the level of, of moods, at the level of uh, emotions, at the level of physiology, and 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 that uh, in fact this does cloud the water. Then, because if we only ever see as we never see, then we are always dealing with our beliefs, not with something called knowledge. Yeah, and you because you chart a chronology of how belief becomes subordinate to mm. knowledge, mm. Um, and um, and and see that as as something quite unhelpful, uh, but also something that is now being challenged. And that that that's what really is to me. I mean, most of my work is to do with the contemporary culture. It's not to do with Neanderthal axes or, or anything. And, and it really is kind of looking at the contemporary scene at, at the moment. And um, what you're seeing constantly, what struck me was the way believe comes in to certain things. You know, believe in better. You know, Sony, uh, is that the Sony one? Or, is, or make believe is the Sony one. Believing better is the Sky TV one. Um, it, believing was part of the UK Olympic uh, uh, campaign, you know, belief, belief or believing is part of Britney Spears' campaign for a new perfume. Justin Bieber's acclaimed out. <laughs> believing is there, out there, much more, and it's being used in advertising. It's being used in, in uh, and it, in the way also in uh, a lot of the kind of um, uh, filming that we're, films that we're getting, where in fact you know something looks as if it's quite quite uh, realistic, like you're walking down King's Cross Station. I mean, what could be more realistic? But in fact, you walk through a wall and you're on a train, and it, th th there's, a, there's a whole kind of bending of things that's going on 
in which there is the, the malleability of the real is quite, quite clearly there, I think. Yeah, I wonder if we can just um, explore that a little bit more. A line that jumped out of your book uh, to me was that you wrote, we are, I suggest, living at a time when believing is reasserting its fundamental nature. And I wonder if that, that taps into the issues that we're, that we're thinking about in this centre and the very existence of this centre, of what is going on with um, believing, particularly religious believing in the world today. Are we going into a, uh, a post-secular uh, age? And secularism is something that you do write quite a bit about in the book in quite a... Um, a critical. Yeah, well, I way. call it the myth of secularism because I think that that's that you know we've been hidebound by this notion of uh, that in fact we're secular, and what I tried to show is that in fact one historically that's not true, not not certainly not in in this country. It was a 1960s phenomena uh, in terms of any kind of data, in terms of records of attendance or anything. Um, and that often it, it's a misnomer, and I tried to look at France and the, the whole thing about the Isite as a state policy, what's normally called procedural secularism. And it's not um, secularism as such. What it, the, the basis, what, what, what's going on here is wanting people to assimilate. Uh, so it's an assimilation, it's... it's part of a move that's happened in the 80s and 90s away from multiculturalism as a state policy towards assimilationism. Are you a citizen or are you not a citizen? If you are a citizen, then you will abide by these kind of rules and you will uh, not publicly display ethnicities or religious affiliations or whatever. So, so I did want to actually put... Whether we're post-secular or not, I, I, it's the term. It doesn't do anything. I mean, what does that actually you know, say? I mean, it, to my mind, what we, what we are experiencing... I mean, some people call it the new visibility of religion. Certainly religion is out there in the public sphere in the last kind of 15, 20 years in a way that it's never been for, for since at least the 60s, 70s. Um, but the other thing uh, uh, about that kind of... It's, it's not just about uh, religion, and, and, and that's the whole yeah. kind of... But, but, I mean, even like something like this. this when LSE was first founded, someone like, someone like this would have never, never happened. Yeah. So it has happened, and it's happened in a certain time frame. And I think, you know, trying to understand what that time frame is, such that even the LSE, or Churchill College Cambridge, which built a chapel as well, it's got it in, in the foundational documents yes. that no chapel will ever be built... In, on, in this college. And so what they did was to actually buy a piece of land which is across a football pitch in which the college chapel is actually put. So something, something changes, you know. A certain, a new kind of credibility about believing, however we want to define it. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm very keen to uh, explore the themes that, that, that emerge across these two books. And um, there's um, a, a rather wonderful line that jumps out of your novel, Sarah, when um, uh, John is having to uh, explain why uh, he's, he's come to this house uninvited and he's sort of, certainly by one character, kind of been found out. And, um, uh, and when he says, well, you know, what, what, what do the others think? Uh, Elijah responds to him, they all just assumed you were mad. 
and and the theme of sanity uh, is, is then is, is developed a great deal through the book in terms of um, uh, uh, as, as we learn more about who these people are and uh, and and how stable they are, um, and that sort of raises a question, it seems to me, about what is a um, what is a rational belief? I mean, it, it, it sort of everyone in the novel is um, uh, is uh, is irra- irrational in, in, in one way or another, um, and uh, which is obviously an interesting. I, d- I just found it lovely. I just because in fact it's not just that you've got religious believing in there. Do they believe each other? And and you know. Mm is part of the whole way in which you're portraying. Yeah, I, I was very preoccupied with the notion of what truth is, both um, yeah. within fiction and in life, um, and what we can know and what we can't know. And that to a certain extent, extending love or friendship or experiencing intimacy with anybody is not dissimilar to having a faith relationship with a divinity, because do you ever know anybody? You know, Do you understand them? Do you know what they're really like? What's the nature of reality... How do you experience people? Um, sorry, we're in the microphone. Right. <laughs> but it's okay. But okay. the sound is okay. It's just me that's flying around. Um, and so, one of my experiences, and I have to say this is my experience of faith, I'm not saying this is what faith is, um, but I experience it very much as a sort of um, love response in the sense that I've, I would dispense with what faith I have if I could but I can't, in a very similar way to feeling love for somebody and knowing it's unsuitable and unsought and unwelcome, but but nonetheless it's there. It's some form of emotional response or directing of your attention towards something unbidden, possibly unwelcome, but it exists. You can feel it, you know. Um, when I see my husband unexpectedly, my heart leaps. Well, why? You know, I, he's not necessarily the greatest human who's ever existed, but nonetheless I have an emotion response towards him. And that's the nearest equivalent I can think of with faith, is that it's, it's simply there. I know it's there because I feel it's there, and it's as irrational as a love response or as violently taking against somebody, which I've got a tendency to do as well. Um, and I, I'm also very interested in what I consider to be a false binary between faith and reason, which I'm completely preoccupied by all of the time. I'm just finishing work on my second novel, and um, it's just I'm going over and over and over this question of faith and reason. Can they coexist? Do they cancel each other out? And um, they can. And I think there's been a misunderstanding of, of, of what faith does. And we've come to understand it not we, in the new atheism, the sort of Dawkins acolytes have come to understand it as being a kind of tumult of stupidity, you know, a, a, an almost medieval turning your back on, on developments of science, reason, philosophy. And what they don't understand, that faith has coexisted very happily with developments in reason and science for hundreds, if not a thousand, well, definitely thousands of years. And, and we were saying earlier, I believe it's the Principia Mathematica. Um, if it's not, it's a similarly kind of vast Enlightenment text. Begins with a dedication towards God. Mm. It, it was not a product in spite of the faith of the writer, who, despite this insane, unreasoning devotion towards a, a nonsensical dark being that he could never see, managed to 
see this kind of extraordinary um, order in the universe, it was because of it. So he conceived of his God as being a God of reason who had set the stars in their motions, who had set the planets in their orbits. Therefore, he must be able to understand it. It, it, it sort of prompted his scientific sort of inquiry. And so I, I think it's exciting to see that we're now beginning to understand that the two things can coexist. And in an institution like this, which was you know, designed to be a kind of secular um, sort of hall of inquiry, um, has understood that these discussions are not counter to it. They're not a response to it, but they will feed into it as it has done for centuries. I mean, uh, you know this measles outbreak that um, sort of has um, sort of started to break out in America? Um, they, uh, there was an amazing article about it in The Independent, and they talked about this great Islamic doctor for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago worked out where to build a hospital by hanging meat in various locations around the city and observing where the meat rotted quickly and where it rotted slowly and deducing that where the meat rotted most slowly the air was more healthful and that was where he would build the hospital. You know, this, this, that inquiry didn't seem to him to stand outside of, of a structure that, you know, by other standards would be seen to be unreasoning. So that's... It's all a muddle, really. I, I, it is an insanity, but but it's not um, one that works against reason. It's mm. all of a whole of the human condition, I think. I, I, what, what I find interesting, though, is that one of the leading um, fields of inquiry, which is opening up the whole questionability of uh, reasoning and rationality, is neuroscience. Mm. And, and when you get something like... Um, you know, uh, Antonio Damasio or Ian McGilchrist talking about we only have 5% access to what goes on. Everything else is so badly lit. So it's only 5% access. So you actually then start to see that, you know, what you call the rational is actually only a very Mm. small band of what's going on within you and what's being processed within you such that, um, you know, there are extraordinary cases where people, well, not quite, I think it's probably more ordinary, people have acted and only then thought about the fact that they've actually acted. Yeah. But they've actually acted yeah. first because there is, you know, I can't remember whether it's a point five or it's something like that, difference between the registering of something emotionally mm-hmm. and the registering of something intellectually. So, so there's, a, there's, there's a time lag where you can respond to something emotionally mm. before you even have understood what it is you're yeah. responding to. Yeah. And I, I think part of what faith is, which I, I want to distinguish a bit from belief, because believing is, mm. is much more... It's very fundamental. To, to, it's, it's as fundamental as desire and as fundamental as imagination. These are the three currents that I would see drive and, and distinguish human beings. And... and so that, that, in fact, where rationali- rationality fits within this great ocean of believing mm. that, that, uh, that, that actually bob- bubbles forth. To, uh, and that it's that awareness now, and it's come from science. Mm. It, I mean, when you've got physicists actually wanting to talk about the bubbling multiverses which are out there, you know, with, then in fact it's not... This is what I find about new atheism, is in fact it, it, it's... That's scientifically so outdated. Yeah. 
It really is. It, I mean, the, the, it's just not something. I mean, even evolution now. I mean, you know, Dawkins is still banging on about the kind of gene and, and epigenetics is, and, and developmental biology has qualified so much about this. You know, there is not a teleology. There is not a movement of, of evolution that's only in one direction. Mm-hmm. It moves in all sorts of different directions simultaneously. So I think, in fact, it's science in many ways, which is opening up the questions of... And some of the most imaginative writing on the planet is coming from science writers mm-hmm. at the moment on these multiverses and um, wormholes and uh, you know, <coughs> virtual matter. Do you know there's more matter in the, in, the, in the universe than can be accounted for? So they have to come up with calculations about virtual matter which means there's no such thing as a vacuum, because, in fact, even a vacuum is full of this virtual uh, matter. I just find it's amazing stuff. That that, um, scientific inquiry and belief being sort of part of a a similar impulse, I find really exciting, and the idea that that to pursue scientific inquiry in any direction is motivated by Mm. a very, very Mm. similar Mm. motive behind somebody pursuing a kind of faith direction. And I'm I'm reading at the moment the Henry Marsh book, Do No Harm, the Mm. neurosurgery book, and he gives an account of um, how he was training to be a surgeon, and he was terribly kind of dissatisfied with it, and he wasn't excited by it. And uh, he was walking along a corridor, and a door was open in the neurosurgery suite where he wasn't allowed to go as a student because it was all sort of terribly... um, sort of beyond what students could understand. And there was a woman in a sort of stretcher but sitting bolt upright with her head screwed into a sort of back plate and her scalp rolled forward and her brain exposed. And sitting behind her, there was a surgeon with a mask over his face and eyeglasses in a quite a dark room, extremely brightly lit. So this extraordinary tableau that really recalls kind of religious iconography and like that he knew that that was what he wanted to pursue Mm. and it was like Mm. a road to Damascus moment Mm. that's what motivated his pursuit towards neurosurgery and then he gives another account of actually performing surgery on someone and sort of looks at this bifurcated brain with a sort of stripe going it looks like a walnut that stripe going down the middle and and he says you know he he understands it rationally he knows where to cut, he knows where to put his scalpel, but also there's so much that he doesn't. And it really is like reading a kind of account of a belief system that simply happens to have been channelled to great effect and great benefit of mankind in, in that direction. And part of the, uh, the link here, I think, is imagination, which is a, a scene that you develop a great deal in the book. And there was this idea, I think even a bit when I was at school, that if you were, um, you know, if you were imaginative, you went down the arts track, and if you were analytical, you went down the science track. And uh, and the, the key point that you make is that actually um, astrophysicists need to be just as imaginative these days. Absolutely. This is completely broken down. I mean, you know, if you look at let, let take, let's take a, a biology example, which was the, the discovery that on the single cell there's something called a receptor cell. Um, and on the membrane, and the receptor cell allows certain things to actually click in, or it doesn't. But if they click in, then that receptor cell feeds right down to change the nucleus of that cell and actually create protein and kind of activation uh, within the cell. And uh, it's, it's the reason why, you know, uh, if you take an analgesic, your headache will go, because the receptor cells will hit 
Okay, so, there's, so somebody had to discover this. This is molecular biology. No one sees this stuff. I mean, you can't see it. Mm. No. <laughs> so in fact, what you do is you mush up pigs' brains, and in fact, you put it into test tubes with an isotope, which is actually trying to find out the kind of uh, receptors that will be sensitive to indicate whether, how many receptors you've actually got, or receptors for that particular uh, thing, the analgesic, for example. And then you swish it around in these one of them wonderful machines. And, and then there's a computer readout of the, um, the, 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 the isotopes and, and, and where they are. So from all this mathematical and mediated data, you come up with this story in which this receptor cell made contact with this ligand that actually changed the whole nature of the nucleus of the single cell and activated it in a certain way. That's all imagine. That's a whole storyline. <laughs> and all they've had is a printout from a computer <laughs> that they've actually been able to read this kind of uh, story into. So I, th- I think there's something really imaginative yeah. in that. But what I found fascinating with Sarah's book is, is then, because I have no account of, of this, is what happens when you have a belief system that collapses? Mm. And that, that was the most wonderful thing about Elijah is you've got a belief system that collapses. And I wondered whether he was in an interim space where he would emerge with a new belief system of some kind when the regularities in the world mm. started to maybe make a pattern again. But in that in-between state, there was no pattern that could be made, mm. so the sky might fall down and he didn't want to go outside. Mm. I was... Yeah, I, I, there's, a, there's a certain kind of belief that will manifest itself in a faith, which, as you say, are very different. And there are certain kinds of faith that ha- are a very, very strong and very stable paradigm. Um, and that certainly that was my background. Um, in fact, I can remember a preacher going up into a pulpit and picking up this vast King James Bible, which was all that we read, and holding it up and saying, this is the Haynes manual for the human being. You know, this is the manufacturer's instruction manual. And so to a certain extent, that the, the religion and the religious life that I was brought up with and that this character has um, is, is, isn't one of wonder and strangeness, but of laws as fixed as the laws of gravity or, you know, Newtonian laws. They are, they are the governing principles of reality as you experience it. So that when this man loses his faith on a, on a curious point um, of logic that, that is something that actually um, happened... Is it, I won't spoil it for you, but it's something that happened to me. It's really quite brilliant, that, that I, That's true, <laughs> what happened there. Um, <laughs> Not that it's Bruce true, that it's brilliant. That. It's a, the incident is true. Um, so, and, and it breaks everything, and gradually he loses his faith. And there's two things that happen simultaneously. One of them is a, an act of falling out of love. The, the emotion is gone. That, that kind of adoring attentiveness towards a being has disappeared. But rather more troublingly, the fundamental laws that governed his existence no longer exist. And so he experiences this as extreme agoraphobia and sort of a general social anxiety. Because if you have believed that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, that his word is as light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path, that everything is ordered for your good, that you are one of the elect, that nothing can happen 
that is not ordained by God for your ultimate benefit. If all of that's gone, life is terrifying. It's, it's a turmoil of strangeness and darkness. Why draw breath when there's no purpose behind it? Why leave the house when there's no benevolent being seeing to it that you're not going to get hit by the number 36? You know, what, how, do you, how do you live? And so he's in this state of extreme terror because when you have that faith paradigm, you don't have a backup one. Yeah. You know, you don't read up on kind of Marxism so that if your biblical fundamentalism fractures, you can go and join the Socialist Workers' Party and they'll give you a paradigm. You, you have nothing. And it's, it's extremely troubling. And, you know, I think that this is a, it's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous, incredibly pernicious to, to, to make people believe or to inhabit a world which can only exist if it sort of accords with a very, very, very strict, very inflexible set of doctrines. And, I, you know, we, we were talking earlier about the radicalism and, and, and sort of ISIS and these schoolgirls and, and boys, actually, that have been radicalised. Well, that they, the danger is that they are only seeing the world as, as being capable of existing within this very tight paradigm, this, this awful model that's being shown to them, that they're being sort of brainwashed by. And anything that exists outside it is derelict and, you know, without sort of... And what do, I mean, if we're thinking about foundations of faith, what do we think lies at the foundation of that kind of faith? And if it is on the increase now with a certain kind of radicalisation, particularly in Islam, you know, but is there something about our culture that's feeding this? I, I, I would want to kind of um, radicalization goes on in every religion, and I think in fact that the more we kind of draw attention to it, I know it's got a yeah, big yeah. thing with yeah. ISIS, yeah. but in fact um, radicalization. I've got a student at the moment who's working on um, El Salvador and, and the, the, the Christian martyrs in El Salvador, uh, and in fact what he is finding is. These were made martyrs. They made themselves martyrs because of the theology that was being mm. given to them. Right. So, so he's looking at the way in which, you know, what we call liberation theology wasn't at all wonderful. Well, actually, what he's looking at is the theology that, in, that actually sent some of these people to be martyrs was deeply, deeply troubling and radicalizing. So I think we've got to see that radicalization goes on and is going on you know, it's not going... But you, you, don't, you only need to go around the, the M25 to some of the big glass churches that are here. Yeah. And you realise yeah, that yeah. the radicalisation is going on where, in fact, you know, you get to a certain number in the church and then the church goes and plants another church mm. and everything else. I mean, that is a radicalisation... That's a whole vision of a kind of, um, you know, viral understanding of the way religion will work. Yeah, and I think the term radicalisation is really important that, it, that we don't think of it as merely referring to that particular no. situation. You know, and I, I would say, to a certain extent, I was radicalised in that everything, absolutely everything, every friendship, every newspaper headline, everything I experienced was filtered through this extremely tight and prescriptive set of rules as set out in one particular translation of one particular religious text. And that, you know, that's a, that's a very radical thing to do. And, and so what happened in, in my um, experience is that suddenly my, my own experience, my own mind, my own reason began to argue with it. And, that, and it was catastrophic because I'd been taught that everything that I should think was set out here about, you know, sort of gay relationships and feminism and, and you know, absolutely everything was all, you know, you don't think... 
don't think for yourself. You're told what to think. That's, that's a radicalisation of a, of a mind, of a young mind. And so to break away from that and to start to kind of structure your own belief system and your own paradigm, particularly if it still has a faith element, is, is very, very difficult. And mm. this is why dealing with radicalisation, wherever it's found, in all the ways it's found, in all the ways it manifests itself, is so important. Mm. Um, so you proposed earlier another foundation of faith, which is wonder. Mm. And I wonder, in this literary festival, where, where the novel fits into that, and, and for you personally and, and more broadly, how the novel is an exploration of, uh, of wonder and faith, because... Uh, I mean, it's always struck me what a, an extraordinarily kind of creative uh, enterprise writing a novel is, that you, you are a creator, you mm. create people, and, uh, uh, and that there's something that, is, that requires them to be believable, mm. for them to, uh, for, for it to be a, a, an experience that, that shapes um, our worldview, our disposition, which is the, the mm. phrase that you use in your book. Um, I... I think that writing for me, and, and I can't speak for any other creator of anything, um, is the nearest I come to an act of worship now, an act of love and devotion. Um, it, it is an act of um, adoration, of excitement, of wonder, of almost disbelief, quite often of pain, <laughs> very frequently of frustration. Um, but there are moments when you perceive something out of the corner of your eye, some fragment of memory, something you once saw from the top deck of a bus and have half forgotten, and suddenly it blooms vividly and really in front of you, and then by some miracle that you can barely kind of get your head round, the vocabulary forms itself into a phrase that apparently no one else has ever thought of. The, the words have settled onto the page and then you write it on the screen and then these lines, these black lines and these little curves, these symbols appear on a white thing and then you read it and then that thing that existed in front of you can now be shown to someone else. And, and I find it as extraordinary as as any other kind of faith experience that I've had. And, and I know there'll be writers here, and I know that you'll know what I mean, that that's an act that's one of... Diver- and, it, and because it, it hurts, you know, and, um, but it also is wonderful. Mm. So and and you, you convey that in your characters as well, because you, you've got... You, they perceive things. And, and then particularly John, uh, one of your main characters, has a, a, just a, a, a real eye for things appearing, like things on the wallpaper mm. that just kind of appear on the wallpaper, that, that kind of, um, you know, most people just see wa- wallpaper, that's wallpaper. He sees groves of trees and birds in the wallpaper. Mm. So there's a kind of engagement with that kind of perceptual wonder that you're not quite sure, you know, what you will discover just by walking down the hallway. Yeah. Oh, I, I um, it's lovely to um, he, that's very much what I wanted to convey. And I, a, a few people have said to me that they're they're surprised by the. It's very difficult to pin down chronologically where when the book's set because there's no iPods or phones or anything. Um, and someone said to me, "When is it set?" And someone thought it was set in some sort of post-apocalyptic future, <laughs> where a communication broken down. And someone said, "You know, is it a historical novel?" But actually, it's it's set in my now, in that probably because of my access to an idea of wonder and strangeness. Is there a God? 
you know, is, is there brimstone under my feet? I don't think there is, <laughs> but, you know, is there? That I perceive the world like that, and so that that's the world that I had to create because that's how I sort of experience things, and that's a belief, right? That's a... Absolutely, and what really interests me is that... I, what, is, could you have written that had you not spent all those years negotiating a different kind of invisibility in, a, in, in another kind of world? You know, the, the years of being a fundamentalist ingrained a habit of imagining things that were not actually there as such. Yeah. I mean, God is not there as such. But in fact, you inhabited this world, which to many other people, you know, is just... You, Madness. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And you know, you've got a lot of other people who are affirming you all the time that it makes perfect sense and want to know, mm. you know, when you actually take the back door out and want to leave. Mm. But but whether in fact it was those years of training and, and kind of Bible reading and absorbing and you know speaking to God and all these kind of ways in which you, that enable you to be imaginative. I, th- I think you're right, and I, I will never, I'll never regret having had that experience. And, and language to me is a, sa- is a sacrament. This is the most pretentious thing I've ever said. I'm really sorry, but, <laughs> but, but, but it is. You know, I'm I am utterly, utterly enthralled to language in a way that's slightly indecent. I mean, I, I memorise poetry, and um, I've memorised the Windhover, the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. And in moments of extreme tension, I recite the Windhover. I mean, it's just awful. I did it during root canal surgery. I barely needed anaesthetic. And in fact, in Norwich, where I live, um, Norwich Cathedral um, has peregrines nesting in the cathedral spire. It's just magical. It's absolutely magical. And this poor man, when when the fledglings flew the nest last year, I came and recited quite a lot of the Windhover to him. And he had this sort of look in his eye and get this woman away from me. Um, But it is, is, it's a form of sacrament. And faith, religion and belief to me was couched Mm. for all those years in what I genuinely believe to be the highest achievement of English literature, which is the the King James Bible, with with these tolling cadences that can't be beaten, that that are like music. And and language, that language exists as exquisitely beautiful in its own right, but (coughs) in terms of what it symbolises and what it's saying, is vast. You know, um, the human behaviour at its most degraded divine behaviour at its most sublime and everything in between. So to me, language being used in this way as a sacrament with devotion, with extreme care and sort of adoration, it comes alongside all of the other stuff. I can't, I wouldn't know how to write without treating language as some sort of precious pigment that you have to kind of eke out and sort of polish. Because everything is colourful, Colours are very important in this mm. imaginative world you construct. It's really yeah, it's not very bright. That's writing. Um, Graham, you say quite a bit about reading mm. uh, in your book and how it engages um, and demands belief. Yeah, I, I mean, this goes, I mean, theoretically, it goes back to, to Coleridge and Coleridge's understanding of the way in which reading fiction that you have to suspend your disbelief but, but um, neurologically they have d- discovered that we have within us what's called mirror neurons so that mirror neurons will mean that 
you know, if I get up and kind of strike someone here, you will not only be shocked that I have actually done that, but in fact, witnessing it, you, in, you, you partake of and reenact in some way that kind of violence that you've actually seen. And, and I've been using this to talk about the way in which novels, like, like your novel, uh, impacts as readers how we enter into. And I mean, what, one of the ones particularly I wanted to look at was Lord of the Rings, because none of this is there. You know, your Thetford is there, but there's none, you know, Frangorn Forest is not there. Um, no one's been to some of these castles, and yet you feel you inhabit them and get to know exactly where, you know, what things are. So it's the way they get you to believe and the way in which that operates somatically upon you and, and so that you're involved. And, you know, as I said, I picked up your book on Saturday morning and I couldn't put it down until I'd actually read it. I was completely involved. And when I actually wanted to put it down because I wanted to do something else, I had to middlingly get back and find out what happens uh, next to actually find out uh, just how it, how it was resolved. Uh, but it's that kind of, you know, those books you've ever read that have kept you away, you, you have starved yourself of sleep mm. to, to actually ensure that you can, because you're completely held by the, by the book. And I just find all that extremely interesting, the way in which, you know, imaginative literature or imaginative film or the way in which our imaginations can link into our believing and our desiring such that we can be locked in there. And, and that if we read a lot, you know, uh, I, I, Oxford's just full of C.S. Lewis, you know, and I just find C.S. Lewis does nothing for me, nothing at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I read C.S. Lewis, and it doesn't engage a single cell as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Tolkien, you know, I'm firing them all cylinders, you know. Um, but I'm interested in the way, interested in the way that, in, in unbelievable, I, I chart someone who does this really very self-consciously as a novelist, and that's Graham Greene. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever kind of read Graham Greene, you know, there is he plays with Catholicism, he plays with Catholic belief, but he's playing with, do you believe mm-hmm. all the time? So that he and he set himself tests. So he would write, you know, the power and the glory, for example, having spent one month, that's all, uh, in, in uh, Mexico. Mm. But he came back and decided to set the whole novel. And he even set novels in places he'd never been uh, as a kind of intellectual challenge. Could he get you? to believe that this was possible. And on the whole, in green, it really works. Mm. There's only one, the, 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 the Stamble uh, Train mm. Express, where I just found that, I'm sorry, this is where I, I, I can't actually believe. You know. and, but it's that, that ability to sustain. Mm. I, I, I just say it is a gift of a novelist because you must not only be engaged in that world, but you must be engaging your readers as well to mm. enter that world mm. and you know it's a very fragile you put something wrong there yeah. and then that's it yeah. the world's you can't you can't do it it's, it's true and and I when you're writing and and trying to construct um, a, a basis of belief you know yeah. that you can seduce your reader into into believing that they're that they're there um, words I find function as objects 
and you have to be very, very careful as a writer. If you, if you imagine you're looking at the page and the page is covered with objects and they absolutely belong there, they all belong where they should be, and if you turn the page and there's a, an object that shouldn't be there, the whole thing fractures immediately. Yeah, yeah. And so language and words functioning in sort of semiotics, if they symbolise the wrong thing, then everything, everything can break just you know, from, from that one thing. And um, I'm editing... The Essex Serpent, which is um, out next year. And um, it's set in, in the 1890s, but I wanted it to be my 1890s, right? So I, my contention is that the 1890s was a contemporary period. <laughs> and so I was using words that I had to be very careful didn't signify kind of crinolines and fainting couches, but yeah. also didn't signify uh, the contemporary world, but, but existed in this liminal state in between. Because if you use the wrong one, then nobody, no one will walk with me, you know, that no one will be where I am. And it's incredibly hard, and you have to absolutely inhabit, you have to believe it, you know, it's like a contagion. It, it's one of the ways, I don't know whether everyone's watching Will Fall, uh, Mantle would not do this, but the film, the, the script for, uh, has, has a, a line uh, that I, I saw one of the characters about, uh, oh, they are they are hung up on something. Oh yeah, and I just thought that's <laughs> yeah. it. That, yeah. There's no yeah, way. Absolutely. There's no yeah. way that that yeah. could possibly yeah. be an idiom yeah. at that time. No. Yeah. Quite. Yeah. And you lose yeah. faith. Yeah. And you lose yeah, faith. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was very interested when you mentioned like a somatic, like physical. Is that what soma means? It like is, the yeah, body yeah, reaction yeah, things. Yeah. Um, I um I read. Have you read Kafka in the Penal Colony? Yeah. I read it on the train, and nearly passed out on the tube. It's the most physically distressing thing I've ever read. And I have a habit of reading the most distressing things I can find. And, and this man is in the penal colony and his... Do you mind if I tell you what happens in it? His, his sentence is literally written on him. It's a pun on the phrase sentence, to be sentenced something, with this harrowing device. So he's strapped into this machine. And, and I just, I couldn't lean back in the chair, you know? I, the man didn't exist. The penal colony didn't exist. As far as I'm aware, this punishment doesn't exist. But I nearly, I had to hold on when I got off the stop. I, I had to actually hold on because my entire body believed it. Yeah. And in, in, a, in a completely kind of reflexive, irrational response that somehow kind of pre you know, comes before actually understanding the text. I, was, I felt sick and shaky and, oh, I feel horrible now. <laughs> so it sort of stayed no, with no, me. it does stay with you. Yeah. It does, it does. I'm I really ready to... Uh,